0: There we go. Two weeks ago, baby Elizabeth graduated from high school. Uh, she uh, No no applause, no applause. She, it was an amazing answer to prayer, which is why I mentioned it, because she was, uh, in elementary school, severely dyslexic, uh, through middle school, had such a significant uh, brain processing issue that she had to wear colored glasses in order to read and has to read with a ruler. Uh, And so it's a miracle she graduated from high school, much less have a 4.0 straight A junior and senior year. So that's kind of amazing to us. A lot, a lot of prayer. Uh, Oldest son Josh is on the left and uh, Elizabeth Josh is at West Virginia working on a PhD. Elizabeth is going to go to school at the University of the Arts in London uh, starting in September Uh, and she got such an amazing scholarship it's cheaper than UT or A&M or her high school so I'm very happy about that Uh, and so uh, she's here for the summer you may see her around in class because if Greg has substitute pastors she sometimes like coming here rather than going to hear Greg so you may see her in class. Uh, Second son, uh, youngest son, Cody, uh, graduated last year. He's been working for the last year, and the reason we weren't here last Sunday uh, is we had to go to Los Angeles. I had work out there on Friday, and then we had to go find him an apartment because in the fall, he starts school at the Los Angeles School of Sound and Recording, which is where they teach you to add sound to television shows, uh, movies, and mix music, and it's a really cool program he's in. Uh, Don't have a picture of her, but Hannah. Uh, our last child uh, moved uh, to Austin yesterday moved back to Austin so after living at home for the last year uh, she's now back in Austin so Natalie went with her in the moving van and uh, spent yesterday and today unloading the moving van and uh, she'll be home later tonight so what does that have to do with class absolutely nothing other than thank you for your prayers for me and my family it's been a really 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 uh, busy two weeks but uh, as far as I know we're here for the next couple of uh, weeks and months and uh, Greg's taking some much-needed time off. I'm not, so uh, I'll be here teaching. Don't be tempted not to come to church because Greg's not preaching. Uh, he's got an all-star cast lined up to preach for him. A couple of my consider personal friends, and uh, it's going to be an amazing series. So just because Greg's gone, please come back. I'm going to be here. The guys he's got backing him up are really, really good. Yes. Uh, can I give a quick commercial yes, you yes. so you know nothing about, yes. yes. um, Since Butch has been out the newsletter and it always has a link to the podcast for your lessons I've been sharing those with people that live in other states towns whatever Iris Sally who was an original member of our class I just ran into it the coffee machine I'm sending it to her so that's a wonderful way to share Chris's great lessons with people that don't have the opportunity to come here on Sunday so thank you for sharing there. very nice All right, Uh, my friend Judge Harvey Brown was gracious enough to teach for me last week. If you were here, he uh, did an introduction to 2 Corinthians, so I don't have to do as much depth as I ordinarily would. But I want to say by introduction that it's shortly after he wrote the first book. He's still in Ephesus writing back to Corinth. He's at the start of the third missionary journey. And two things are really important. Number one, his first letter angered the church at Corinth. They said, how dare you pick on us? Uh, Why aren't you here in person? You told us you were going to come visit us and you haven't. And so they attacked him. They attacked him for their circumstances. In other words, saying, hey, I thought being a Christian meant the creator of the universe was now on our side. Why aren't things going any better for me? And then number two, they started attacking him personally. And second, as a result of those attacks, it is his most personal most emotional, less organized theologically than any other letter he we're ever going to study of him, uh, and so you'll see a lot of his personality come out, and you'll see that this morning. It starts deeply emotional because he's been attacked, and I'll explain that as we go through it. He addresses in the first two chapters the two greatest challenges in life, and that is number one, when things go bad. We get sick, we lose our jobs, there's uh, uh, f- relational problems, basically suffering. We live in a world with lots of suffering, uh, the vast majority of it we don't have anything to do with, it just happens to us. The second thing may have more to do with this, and that's when we are attacked. People come after us for whatever reason, maybe well-founded, maybe ill-founded, but they come after us. So you're left with raw, beaten up, upset, wondering, sometimes angry people at a world that makes them sick, that fractures relationships or employment situations, and then you've got another situation with people that attack you. And Paul's going to address this, how do you survive that as a Christian? because the world deals with it. There's a whole bunch of ways to cope. He gives coping mechanisms 101 for those two big challenges and he ends with this issue of forgiveness that I think you'll enjoy when we get there. So he starts with this concept of comfort through suffering because what he's challenging is the idea that God is genie in a bottle. I got a problem, I rub the genie little bottle thing, a little lamp. Uh, I pray, and then the genie comes up and answers my wish. He says that's not what happens. He addresses this issue starting in chapter one by essentially asking why uh, do things bad happen to us and where's God when all the bad things are happening so he starts by addressing who God is chapter 1 verses 2 & 3 his introduction is grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort he comforts us in all of our affliction now From the audience Paul's writing to, it's very similar to us sometimes as Christians when we get depressed and think that God is afflicting us in our comfort. And we're like, why me? And the perception that Paul wants to do is he is comforting us in all of our afflictions. So his position as God is recognizing that the world we're in is making us more Christ-like. The challenges we face are similar in kind to the challenges Christ faced. We go through them. There's a reason that has nothing to do with us for why we're going through those things. It's interesting, a little phrase here, comfort, that I highlighted in gold, and who comforts us uh, is the word paracleto. And it's the word you've probably heard before in church, because it's the name in John chapter fourteen that God, that uh, Christ in teaching gave to the Holy Spirit. When in John fourteen sixteen, Christ said, "I am sending to you after or God's going to send to you afterwards uh, a comforter." An advocate for you he uses this term as a way to describe the Holy Spirit so he's describing this Spirit of God as a comforter it's totally consistent with the description of the Holy Spirit that indwells in our hearts but then very quickly he gets into the reason or the purpose of this it says in verse 4 he comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction Through the comfort we ourselves receive from God, for as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so through Christ our comfort also overflows, you could add in, to others. That's the whole point. And it's the idea of sympathy versus empathy. Sympathy is wonderful. If um, a woman loses her husband, she's a widow, any age, I can be incredibly sympathetic my heart can break for that because I can relate through family members but I've never had that situation Natalie has she is it was a widow uh, her husband died in her younger 30s and it was devastating but she can empathize meaning she because of experience can put herself there meaning she is much more powerful at impacting another widow than I could ever be or even a widower So this is a great picture of empathy because it's a picture of the other person's situation in your mind experientially. And you can have all the sympathy in the world, but a transformative relationship is one of empathy that says, I've been there. If you live a life free of struggle, your ability to empathize is zero. If you live a life with health struggle, employment (coughs) struggles, relational struggles, whatever it is, your ability to empathize exponentially increases with each trouble. So if it's relationally, then you can minister to a group of people who have relational struggles. If it's health, you can minister to another group of people that have health issues. That ability to empathize is what is is maximized by Christ's (coughs) spirit inside of us, where it says at the end of that passage that just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, they comfort us, knowing whatever we're going through, Christ went through something worse, so through Christ, our comfort overflows to other people. So if you're having a pity party because of something circumstantially related to you, this says, hey, this is not about you. God has allowed you to remain in this situation so that you can be a blessing to somebody else. The power of this is verses 8 through 10, and it's the next point on your outline, because he says, We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life. What he's describing is when they beat him up and stoned him and left him for dead right we studied that about two months ago he says in person indeed personally we had a death sentence within ourselves in other words, we felt the death sentence so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead he has delivered us from such a terrible death and he will deliver us we have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again so this is Paul basically saying that if our boat is not rocking, if the wind is not blowing, if the waves aren't pushing us around, then we think we're doing a great job sailing. Just let me go on with life, I'm doing a great job. Things get shaky, the waves get heavy, the wind gets hard, and all of a sudden we're like God help me, and that's the exact point. God knows giving us a tranquil, calm life gives us a life all by ourselves. We go to God when we need Him. Our sin nature that still inhabits us makes us think subconsciously, I got this all by myself. I solve problems. I'm smart. Life is good. Let's just go on with life. Life gets tough. It's like us as children. We run to our parents, grab onto the leg, and hold tight. And that's the point. And the power of it is it keeps us trusting in Him and not ourselves. And so it gives us the ability to empathize and comfort other people. It gives us the ability to turn out of ourselves and turn to him. And he ends on a fascinating little point because he says in the end of 10 and 1st of 11, we've put our hope in him that he will deliver us again while you join in helping us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. This is a fascinating concept for me. Because you would think if he's talking about suffering, he might talk about his own prayer and how God answered that. But instead, he talks about the prayer of other people. It's one of the biblical reasons we start class the way we do. Because obviously there's an assumption, if you're here, you believe in prayer and you're going to pray by yourself. But the reason we pray collectively is it highlights it's a gift that you can give to somebody else. It says, of all the things I could petition the almighty creator of the universe for right here and now, I'm not going to ask for myself. I'm going to ask for somebody else. And it's very similar to the way Christ prayed, when Christ prayed it multiple times during his ministry, that if you went back and counted them, is he praying for himself or is he praying for other people? The list of himself is really, really tiny. You can count on one hand and have multiple fingers left over. Christ's prayers for other people will fill up the rest of the page so his model is not praying for himself which is our model of prayer it's always about ourselves Christ's model of prayer is praying for other people and going to God the Father and saying would you address the situation now we've talked in here before about this whole idea of prayer does prayer change God or does prayer change us The answer is prayer changes us, but there is unquestionably a connection between what we pray for and how we perceive what we get, and the effect of multiple people praying for us is essentially not that we get what we want. The benefit of multiple people praying is that with the power of that, we understand what He wants. You see the difference? we think multitude of prayers is a lot of people ganging up on God saying give me what I want the biblical model of prayer is a whole bunch of people give enough power to convince us of what he wants for us radical radical difference because it goes from our wish list a whole lot of people praying, God, your will be done, and then us being able to figure out through the power of those around us praying for us what his will is. So it's a radical different perspective on prayer, and that's why Paul ends here. He's going to pick up this idea of prayer later. I'm going to get to it in a couple of weeks. We're going to do a significant Mm -hmm. part of a lesson on prayer, but for this, he's just wrapping up this issue on comfort. Now, he transitions real quickly from suffering comfort of others, prayer for others, uh, focusing on God not on ourselves and he turns to his attack the issue of his attack is real simple and real childish he told them he was coming back, he got busy and didn't go and they're hurt and their response to that was basically to write him a letter and say if you said you were coming and you weren't honest How can we believe anything you told us about God the Father or Jesus Christ? I get the logic, but it's pretty childish. Paul's response is, give me a break. I've been doing what God told me to do. Their response is very childish, very immature. You said you were coming back. You haven't come back. Therefore, you're a liar and we don't believe anything you said. So Paul has to attack this issue of what do I do when I'm personally attacked? For us, it's real simple. And sometimes it's a direct attack, sometimes it's just an attack that we may perceive that may not be directly trying to hurt us, but nevertheless we're hurt by it. We live among porcupines. Human beings are porcupines. It's part of the sin nature. In heaven, no porcupines. On earth, we're all porcupines. We get together, we poke each other. And no matter how much you try to snuggle up as a porcupine, you're still going to get poked. Right, We live life among porcupines, so if you're going to be poked and hurt, you got to understand how you deal with this. So Paul, in the next couple of verses here to end up chapter 1 and start chapter 2, is essentially modeling what do you do when you're attacked. I gave you a couple of easy, easy points to work through, and they start with this idea of being transparent. What kind of confidence can you have when you're being attacked? He says in verse 12, this is our confidence. The testimony of our conscience is that we've conducted ourselves in the world, and especially towards you, with God-given sincerity and purity. Not by fleshly wisdom, but by God's grace. Now, we're writing nothing to you other than what you can read and also understand. I hope you'll understand completely, as you have partially understood us, that we are your reason for pride as you are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Let me explain all that. What he's basically saying is, look at my life you've criticized me. You've poked me because you're mad I'm not there. He said, all of my life has been an open book to you, and all I'm doing is trying to serve you with what God gave me, sincerity and purity, not because of what I think is in your best interest, my worldly wisdom. That's the way you start in dealing with people that are poking you. If they don't like you, There's little you can do to change, but if you're transparent and show them Christ in you, then there's less, hopefully, reason or motivation for them to poke you. They may still do it anyway if they're evil. I've had evil, I think, demonically uh, influenced lawyers attack me viciously. And there's not a lot I can do about it, but if I live a transparent life where my faith in Christ is obvious, where my prayers are pure, where I you know, am not ashamed of, of my role as a Christian, uh, then it's a transparent life that if I'm gonna get picked on, at a minimum, people around me know I'm just being picked on, I didn't do anything to cause it. But if I'm all controlled, if I'm quiet, if I'm upset because somebody hurt me, if I withdraw, then nobody can see that. So being transparent also means showing that you've been hurt. It doesn't mean pouting. It doesn't mean fussing back. It just means going to somebody and say, this happened and I've been hurt. So transparency is showing your humanity, showing that somebody poked you and it hurt, uh, but he builds from there. That's just his first point. His second point is that he's always loyal. Even though someone has hurt him, even though someone is attacking him, He says, I'm still going to be loyal to you in my affection, my teaching, my guidance. He says that in verse 615. I planned this with confidence to come to you first so that you could have a double benefit and go on to Macedonia with your help and then come to you again from Macedonia and be given a start by you in my journey to Judea. This is him saying, my plan is still to come to you. I told you I was coming. You're mad at me for not being there. My plan has always been to come to you because I love you. That's the unspoken inference. I'm still committed to you. I'm still doing it. A takeaway for us in dealing with people, particularly a really close relationship, is when you are attacked or you are you get pushed back from somebody, a spouse, a child, a, a coworker, somebody that says, "You hurt me." the response is no I didn't. The right response is no you misunderstood. The right response is not no let's debate about whether or not that was the right thing to do or not. The right response is I love you or I care for you. Once you establish that then you can go on to discuss what the level of hurt is. But you start with the connection of somebody that thinks you hurt them of saying I care about you. I care about you as a person and I care about you so much that if there's been hurt, it's unintended, so let's talk about it. But he's saying, I'm going to lead off with loyalty, lead off with love, and it kind of sets the emotional environment for the discussion that follows. Because he starts this idea, of I'm open and transparent, if I'm open and transparent, I genuinely care for you, that comes out number two. Number three, I'm going to be honest, and I'm going to be reliable. This point is basically no spin you did wrong you own it you maybe should have said something a little bit different you own it it means no excuses if somebody thinks they're hurt their perception is your reality so many times in relationships the biggest arguments are somebody trying to persuade somebody their perception is wrong because they think they've been hurt and the person arguing the perception says I didn't hurt you or I didn't mean to hurt you I'll say it again if their perception is one of hurt their perception is your reality because that's how they feel so the only way to deal with them is no spin no excuses confront it straight on and if that's how they feel, you got to own it and deal with it. Paul gives an illustration through his conduct. He says in verse 17, When I planned this, in other words, when I planned to come see you, was I irresponsible in just throwing out this idea, I want to come see you again? Or what I plan do I plan in purely a human way so that I say yes, yes, and no, no? In other words, he's saying, I gave you my best shot. I'm not omniscient about what God's going to do I, you asked me if I would come back. I said yes. He says, as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, a final yes has come to him. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. That's a whole bunch of words that says God doesn't change his mind. Okay. So, Paul's saying, My human plan when you said, Are you going to come back? was a genuine, heartfelt yes. But when God says yes to somebody else and then tells me, I got to go, then I got to go. So, he's saying, Don't criticize me from my heart, which in a human way tried to give you the yes and the no. He said, God doesn't uh, uh, move back and forth between the two, and God has a plan you move. He then moves on to sensitivity. And it's basically a recognition, I'm going to be transparent, I'm going to express my love, no spin, but i got to be sensitive to what's really going on. Because what happens when somebody thinks they've been hurt by your words or deeds, inevitably there's something else going on. Because if it's just that one thing and there's nothing else going on, it's normal like water off a duck's back it's no big deal they're not hurt they're not upset but if you doing or saying something upsets them and you immediately go into defense mode and say no I didn't do it or no I didn't hurt you or no you shouldn't feel that way you're missing the whole point because you're trying to address what they reacted to rather than the underlying issue which is probably an unrelated hurt, an unrelated sense of loss, and something else that you've got to have a sensitivity to because if all you do is address their immediate pushback of whatever you said or did, you're not addressing the bigger issue. Paul illustrates that in verse 21. He says, it's God who strengthens us with you in Christ has anointed us. He's also sealed us and given us a spirit as a down payment in our hearts. I call upon God as a witness on my life that it was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. I don't mean that we have control of your faith, but we're workers with you for joy because you stand by faith. In fact, I made up my mind about this. I would not come back to you on another painful visit. What Paul is saying in his writing is... Y'all are fussing at me for not coming to talk to you. And, and he says, you're mad at me because I wrote you a letter that didn't say nice, warm, fuzzy things about you. And I realize you're mad. But Paul's basically saying, I've got a sensitivity here. And I didn't do what you want. Because the Holy Spirit told me that would have been worse. In other words, Paul's saying, if I showed up in person, I may have said something I don't want to say. So I wrote you a letter instead. So what Paul is doing is he's addressing the unspoken complaint. The complaint is, Paul, you're a liar. You said you were going to come back, and we haven't seen you yet. Therefore, we're not going to believe what you said about God and Christ. Paul looks at this, he feels about it, and he says, you feel scared. You feel weak. And so what he's saying here is, I know what's going on. And I'm trying to do something to give you more strength and to make you less scared. He's trying to address the real unspoken issue. The real unspoken issue is not Paul showing up. Yeah, they'd like to have him, but at the end of the day, so what? It's fear, it's weakness. It's a lack of somebody like him that just hasn't matured enough with them and they're just wondering, where's Paul? So he's got a sensitivity to what the bigger deal is. Then he's got an understanding of why that feels that way. It says in verse 2 of the next chapter, for if I cause you pain, then who will cheer me other than the one being hurt by me? I wrote this very thing so that when I came, I wouldn't have pain for those who ought to give me joy because I'm confident about all of you that my joy will also be yours. What he's trying to say is, I love you guys. I care for you. My goal is not to make you upset and make you hate me. He says, when I show up, I want you to be happy. I want you to have my joy for ministry, my joy for Christ. And he says, I did the best I could. I didn't want to cause you pain. I'm trying to understand where you are. And so he basically says, when I come or when I came, I would give you joy. So he's basically saying, I understand what's going on. And then he ends with this, which is the perfect way to end. He says in verse 4 of chapter 2, I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled, languished heart, not that you should be hurt, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. He's basically saying to you, I may have had different words I could have used, but I shared what God told me to use. If I didn't love you, I would not have done anything. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't have done anything. So he's saying, forgive me for what you uh, perceived was an attack. It was really out of love and he's trying to address the underlying unspoken issue and basically saying, you're loved, you're supported, you're cared for, I'm coming back. And he's basically saying, when I show up, you'll know the abundant love I have for you. So it's a great way through a picture of how we deal with being attacked. Now let me digress for a second when we go on, because we're going to end with this issue of forgiveness, but I want to transition out of it with how we deal with hurt. A spouse does something that just offends us horribly typically it's minor but at the time we're totally offended a coworker says something or doesn't invite us to something or takes us off a team or whatever it may be another family member a child lashes out at us and you're you're just something horrible said to you or done to you there's just a deep level of hurt we do a couple of things Number one, if you're highly emotional, you get angry and you bow up. And you're like, how dare you say that about me? I got 50 things about you. I'm glad you raised them. Let me tell you what I think about you. (laughs) Uh And you're off to World War III. So a highly volatile emotional person can be really dangerous in this situation because there's typically an escalation before there's a de-escalation. Number two, the opposite end of the spectrum is the withdrawal there's an attack and you're like, I'm out of here, I quit, I'm not doing it, I'm not going to see them anymore, how dare they not lavish me with praise, I'm not going to deal with them. In a marriage, it involves them going into another room in the house or leaving the house for a couple of hours or days. Uh, In a work situation or a ministry situation, it typically results in just a resignation. I quit, I'm not doing anymore because I've been hurt by what somebody said. Both of those situations are dangerous because just as it's dangerous to escalate, it's dangerous to de-escalate because of the other person. Remember, if somebody's attacked you, there's something else going on. They feel something, there's something else going on. If you de-escalate and go into hiding, nothing got solved. The other person is now just festering because their interpretation of your withdrawal is you don't give a darn which just festers the underlying problem. So escalation is bad because then that's war. De-escalation sends the message potentially of I don't care, and you got a bigger problem. So the middle ground between those two is what he gets to in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2. And this is pretty cool because we're dealing with the idea of forgiveness. And it's primarily the idea of how God forgives. Because our perceptions of this are massively humanistic and not divine. They're not godlike. So I titled this section Christ-like When Hurt because Paul is now going to address this idea of how you deal with somebody who's hurt. Now in Paul's situation, he's not dealing with his hurt. Paul is so much beyond this. The fact that they were mad at him, he's done with by the time he starts with what's our Bible, the first of chapter 2. He's now transitioning to talk about somebody in their church they won't forgive. You may remember a couple of weeks ago when I started First Corinthians, I told you that one of the reasons he wrote 1 Corinthians was there was still a lot of sin going on in the church. And they had a particular problem of incest where uh, an adult son was having sexual relations with, I think it was a stepmother, And it just created all kinds of problems. And so Paul writes his first letter, and in response to that, they basically excommunicate the offender and then won't talk to him, won't do business with him, won't do anything with him. They just kick him out and banish him like they would have done in an old Jewish community when they would kick him out of the city or kick him out of the synagogue. So Paul addresses, what do you do when somebody is hurt? And the imagery that he's doing or he's, he's trying to capture without speaking it is Matthew 18. Christ is approached and said, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? Christ says 70 times 7. It's basically infinity. There's no end to how many times you have to forgive somebody. Paul doesn't quote Matthew 18 or even give a reference to the parable that he teaches. He instead gives some practical little points here I want to walk you through for how this works. Chapter 2 verse 5, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain not so much to me, but to some degree, and I'm not exaggerating, to all of you. The perspective is when we are hurt, there's something bigger going on than just us. If I'm hurt, it could mean somebody else is mentally ill. And they're attacking me, and they think they're right, but they're just messed up. It could be there's demonic influence. They're attacking me because Satan wants me publicly attacked in this way, and there's demonic influence going on. It could be innocuous. It could be there's just a mistake. But nevertheless, there's something else going on that's not just me. So the perspective when hurt is fighting the human nature to say, this is all about me they hurt my feelings, they didn't do something, they did do something that hurt me, they said something that hurt me, or they didn't say something that lifted me up, whatever it is, the perspective is, this is bigger than me. So what it does is if you're having an emotional reaction up to get angry, or an emotional reaction down to flee, this is saying pull out of the emotions, go to your brain, and think what else could be going on here. This is bigger than me. Why is he or she saying this? Why is he or she doing this? There's a perspective that's bigger than us. And Paul says, with respect to this little attack that's going on, this is impacting all of you. This is not an attack on one person or one issue. Number two, the purpose of dealing with forgiveness. He says the punishment inflicted by the majority, he's saying the entire church in which you did this one guy, is sufficient for that person. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, this one may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. So what they're saying in this situation is in that church, somebody got called on the carpet for sin, was excommunicated. They wouldn't do business with him. They wouldn't talk to him. They wouldn't help him. And Paul's saying that's the opposite. Yes, you can have a degree of punishment sin has consequences but it's with forgiveness it's with comfort it's with reconciliation and you work to restore now let me say at the outset here there's two issues on harm there's one where there's a harm in a relational sense that it's unsafe or unfair for you to stay in that particular situation hear me well God does not call any of us to a place of abuse If somebody says something or does something abusive, this is not saying go back into the face of the fire. God doesn't call anybody to abuse. There's a way you deal with that I'll get to in a minute. But if it's somebody that it is a sin that doesn't directly affect you, this is saying there's got to be forgiveness, there's got to be comfort, there's got to be reconciliation. That's a little bit different deal. So our idea of a purpose here is primarily dealing with that second situation, where there's been a sin, there's been some consequences, but you've got to work towards forgiveness. So at this point, everybody says, well, wait a minute. What if they don't recognize that there's sin? What if they don't ask for forgiveness? What if they don't think they did anything wrong? Then what happens? And the answer is that the excuse you just gave in God's mind does not matter. Now, in a relational sense, it impacts the first issue I talked about. If someone is dangerous, if someone does something that hurts you, if somebody does something that exposes you to a greater uh, risk of something, if somebody is just verbally abusive and it's not emotionally healthy, then you don't go back into the face of fire because our point was God doesn't call anybody to abuse, verbal, physical, or otherwise. But in terms of how you mentally approach them It's a radically different situation. He gets to this when I describe permanence in verses 9 through 11. Let me read it and I'll talk about it. He says in verses 9 through 11, I wrote, he's saying initially, 1 Corinthians, to test your character and see if you are obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I do too. For what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, It is for you in the presence of Christ. I've done this so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. I describe this as permanence because what Paul is saying here is that there is an ongoing test for how we forgive. And with the way I want you to think about this, before you think about yourself and those that you know you may need to forgive, or those that may need to forgive you, and I want you to think about God. Okay. The way God forgives is radically different than us. Okay. We start with the concept of God is omniscient, right? He knows everything. He cannot forget. But what does Scripture say? about how God views your sin. It describes it in two picture ways. Number one, it says in God's mind, your sin is as far from God as the east is from the west. How far is that? It's as far as you can get, right? Now, he's omniscient. He's not forgetting. So if he's omniscient and not forgetting, what is he doing? I'll tie it up in just a second. Next picture in scripture, God to your sin. It describes it as the equivalent of the deepest part of the ocean. A place where we can't go, a place where we can't see, omniscient, all-powerful, all-creator God, says your sin to me is the equivalent of being on the, your sin being on the bottom of the ocean. Can't be seen, can't be reached. So if an omnipotent, all-powerful God has the ability to say, yeah, I could go down to the bottom of the ocean, I created it. But he doesn't, what does that say? So east versus west, bottom of the ocean versus where we live, God's given a picture of his omniscience and his omnipotence and saying, yep, I can remember that. Yep, I can go back to that place. But God is saying, I choose not to. And that's our life lesson here. Forgiveness is not about forgetting. Forgiveness is about choosing not to raise it. That's the fill in the blank on the third page of your outline. The first fill in your blank is forgiveness is not about forgetting. Because so many times when we're hurt, we say they have not asked for my forgiveness. They don't know they did anything wrong. They refuse to admit they did anything wrong. Does not matter. This is not about you forgetting what they've done. If it's a dangerous environment, if it's verbal abuse, forgetting means I'm not walking back into it until there's meaningful change and reconciliation. But the second part is how you live in that situation. It's I choose not to raise it, okay? Now, the reason that I mention this in a biblical sense of how God deals with our forgiveness is how God approaches us. There's no example in Scripture when somebody goes to him and says, I've sinned, I need forgiveness. It says in Scripture, if we ask, he forgives us. And as we've talked about before, our salvation is secure from when we believe in Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Everything else in life as it relates to sin with God is a matter of our relationship to him. You can sin like nobody has sinned before and just sin awesomely, just awesomely. All it does is fracture relationship with God. It does not impact your eternal salvation. Same thing with human relations. You can still be family. You can still be married. You can still be coworkers. That sin just impacts your relationship. It doesn't change the nature of your relationship. And so what it says is I'm going to choose you, I'm going to choose not to raise it as I deal with you. I can still have boundaries on safety. I can still have rules on how we communicate with each other, but I'm not going to raise it. It is funny to me that when people in relationships have conflict, some people get hysterical and other people get historical. Mm-hmm. I don't know why guys are just as likely to do this as women, but I hear about it more with women than I do with men. you got a conflict and somebody bows up and they immediately say, do you remember what you did in 1987? I still, re- yeah, most of us are like, no, I don't. You know, I still remember what happened on that night in 2004, right? They want to go back. That's not forgiveness. If you've ever spoken to a spouse, a child, a coworker, or anything else historical about a hurt like that, that's an example of non-biblical forgiveness. That is conditional forgiveness where you say, I'll choose not to raise it here, but then when I'm hurt and feel like it, I'll choose to raise it over here. That's not forgiveness, and that's why this ties back into Matthew 18. When Christ taught the story of 70 times 7, he put an application to it. He gave us a real-world example. And his real-world example was the guy that owed the king some money, and it was more than he can pay. And God said, okay, I'll forgive that crazy amount of money that you can't pay. And then that guy, on really small things, went to everybody else and just abused the life out of him for not paying him the dollar twenty-five they owed him. And Christ looked at the picture and said, look, if you're not forgiven that small stuff, how dare you expect God to forgive you of all the big stuff in your life? Do not come to God asking for forgiveness if you can't deal with the small stuff. Now, it's not threatening to take away your salvation. It's not threatening to send you to hell. It's basically saying you can't have the relationship with God that you want. You cannot be as close to God as you want if you live a life that involves historical situational, conditional forgiveness. Doesn't mean we don't forget. We all can remember. But it says, I choose not to raise it. So if somebody hurts me, it doesn't matter if they don't ask for forgiveness. I've been hurt grievously by people in the past, and as far as I know, they'll live the rest of their lives and never apologize and not caring that they hurt me. They may even say they wanted to hurt me. So there is zero zero, uh, request for forgiveness, there's zero repentance, there's zero desire to change. I can live my life with that conflict, or I can simply say, I will deal with you, and I remember it, but I will choose not to bring it up. The next time I see you, I'm not going to raise it. The next time you say something bad, I'm not going to raise it. The next time I'm upset, I'm not going to raise it. I choose not to do it. So at this point, inevitably, we all say the same thing. So much easier to say than do. I just can't do it. I can't get my brain wrapped around it. You do not understand how bad I've been hurt. You do not understand. You just, if if you understood my situation, you'd understand why I did what I did or said what I said. The problem we go through is that we live when we're emotionally tied into something in the part of the brain that involves emotions, where you're hurt badly. Let me teach you 30 seconds on brain chemistry. That part of your brain where your emotions reside is called the amygdala. The amygdala lacks the ability to have compartments. There are no compartments on anger. There's no compartments on rapturous joy or laughter. It's just it permeates all aspects of you because of that amygdala the frontal cortex where you do math where you read where you think the frontal cortex is all about compartments it's why you can remember your phone number from 30 years ago it's why you can remember your teacher's name in the sixth grade those are all little compartments the frontal cortex is all about compartments And the reason why you can choose not to raise something, even though you still remember it, is you move it from the emotional part of brain to your frontal cortex. How do you do that? By talking about it. You find somebody you can talk to. It's why the profession of psychiatry exists. They make their money $150 at a time by doing this. For some of us, you have a spouse you can talk to. I do, it's the strength of our relationship. Some of you don't. You may have to have a friend or a paid friend, a psychologist or psychiatrist to help you do it. But if you've got an issue where your hurt is so deep that you say, Chris, because I can't forget, I cannot choose not to raise it again. I'm struggling with it. The answer is you pray about it because it requires a superhuman strength not of yourself to move it from that one part of your brain to the other. And then you get somebody and you talk about it. You talk about the hurt. You talk about what they did. You talk about what they said. You talk about how deep it is. And by doing that, there's something about the way God made us. It moves it from one part of the brain that lacks compartments into another part of the brain that is nothing but compartments. And when it gets into the frontal cortex with God's answer to prayer and by talking to somebody about it, you put it in a place that has compartments and you can live despite grievous hurt and grievous harm. If you live in a world where hurt is compartmentalized, it makes how you deal with everybody else, including your offender, amazing. If you live with hurt in the amygdala, where we have our emotions based, then you're just a porcupine bumping into everybody and poking everybody because you can't deal with this uncompartmentalized emotion. Paul gave us an amazing little conclusion here that I describe on your outline of how to deal with this is passing the smell test. And I use this because of the way Paul ends this whole passage. He says, thanks be to God who always puts us on display and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For to God we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing. To some, however, we are an aroma of death leading to death, but to others an aroma of life leading to life. Now, he's talking to Christians, okay? He's talking to Christians, dealing with other Christians. We've not yet started talking about the rest of the world. He said to God, you have a scent. How do you smell? He's saying to everybody else, you have a scent. And some people say you smell like death. And some people say you smell like life. Now, you think about that for a minute and you go, "Okay, I get the analogy. How I act, what I say, what I do is giving the equivalence of an aroma. I get that. The takeaway is the diagnostic, because the way we exist physically is the way we exist spiritually, and that is very, very quickly, we lose the ability to tell that we stink. (laughs) Illustration, guys will get this. If you've ever gone camping for four or five or six days, and you come back into civilization, when you walk back into the restaurant or into your home and everyone wrinkles their nose like, oh, you smell horrible. You're like, what? I've just been camping. We're completely unaware of it, right? You're aware of it for a short time, but as time goes on, a very little brief amount of time, our senses lose the ability to tell we stink. When I was a kid, when I lived in elementary school, junior high school, we lived in a really small town in central Texas, a thousand people. There is nothing to do in a town of a 1,000 when you're 13 years old and you just got a bicycle and a bunch of buddies. There was a landfill at the end of a dirt road on the street our house was on. There was so much fun that we found that we could do in a landfill with bicycles. And it always amazed me. I would come home and my parents would go, you've been at the landfill. And I'm like, how did you possibly know? Because I was immune to the scent, but I would walk back into my house after riding my bike around the landfill and they could smell me. I couldn't smell myself. So the takeaway diagnostic on this exact point on the screen is we cannot smell, we cannot tell how we're doing as it relates to this lesson. How are you doing on sorrow? How are you doing when you're attacked? How are you doing on forgiveness? The challenge and the takeaway on this lesson is don't self-diagnose and give yourself an A-plus on this lesson thinking I got it all down. Ask someone else, how do I smell? Right? (laughs) How do you think I'm doing on this sorrow in my life? How do you think I'm doing on this hurt in my life? How do you think I'm doing on dealing with this struggle? With my law partners who I just treasure deeply, If I'm going through something where it's just deeply, deeply tough on me in a time in the past, I would go to them from time to time and say, I can tell you I think I'm doing through this problem. How do you think I'm doing? And usually I think I was doing really good, and they'd shake their head going, Oh, it's just an embarrassment. We're praying for you. (laughs) Right? And I get feedback on how I'm doing that gives me encouragement, that tells me which way to go, that tells me maybe I need to talk more, maybe I need to pray more, maybe I need to study my Bible a little bit more on this particular issue. Whatever it is, it lets other people help you diagnose how do you smell. So if Paul ends this whole lesson by saying we're an aroma to God because of how we deal with sorrow and personal attack, We're an aroma to everybody around us based on how we deal with sorrow and how we deal with personal attack. Passing the smell test is asking those around you, how am I doing? And if you ask, prepare for an answer that you may not be ready for, which cycles back into the lesson on how you're dealing with sorrow and how you're dealing with personal attack, because you may be looking for praise and then you get a reaction that you're not doing so well and dealing with that hurt. So it's Paul basically saying, that if we do it right it's a pleasing aroma to God and it's an aroma of life for those around us who have sorrow and attack in their life and they look at us going how did you get through it? How did you do it? And if they ever come to you or they just see your life the answer has got to be because the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ in my life making me less like me and more like him. When you do that You've got Christianity Survival 101 in the back. Amen? Amen. Next week, more good stuff out of Second Corinthians. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this lesson. We thanks for the cha- thank you for the chance to study your word, to be taken down to our essence. And Father, we ask for your forgiveness for not dealing with health issues the way we should, for not dealing with money issues and relational issues as being sinful people, we ask just for your forgiveness to give us wisdom in how to react, give us discernment in what to say, give us a heart that thinks of forgiveness first before it's even asked for or contemplated, not because of something that we're supposed to be other than Christ-like, which is forgiving, before it is even asked for. We ask that you would make us, not through our efforts, but through your Holy Spirit in our lives, an aroma that's pleasing to you, an aroma that's life to other people so that we can be a light to a dark world that needs to know the answer to sorrow and the answer to attack is the comfort provided by the comforter that lives within us, that anchors our security in heaven with you, our Father. We ask these things through Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. See you all next week. Chris, thank you so much. Thanks for being here. I I never cease to get Great right knowledge. I, I just thank you for the time that you spend. I uh, have a legal question. Yes, shoot. Okay. Uh, my mother sold her trailer park. Okay. Uh, it was part of a real estate transaction okay. and uh, the title company I told them not to.